Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy K. Part. You are listening to episode 23, titled Fear, Vulnerability, and Inviting Peace with Elizabeth Bojong. This episode is a beautiful conversation with my friend and fellow griever, Elizabeth. She is a licensed nurse and spiritual coach in Oklahoma, currently exploring what it means to live life by her own standard, a truly authentic path set before her, even when it means taking a big old pivot. Her original life plans included graduating from a Christian nursing school into the ICU at 21 years old. And right away, her understanding of the narrative, life at all costs, shifted after what she witnessed and experienced. There's also a fantastic conversation about hope theory at the end, which you need to hear. Before we begin, I do want to offer a content warning as we discuss how resuscitation efforts can have devastating effects. Please listen with discretion. Welcome back, everybody. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm so glad that you're here today. I know that uh, your storytelling and the way that you present everything you've been learning over the last however long in your walk with faith and your relationship to grief has been just such an encouragement and a delight to be able to witness. So I'm so glad you're here to share some stories about that today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Why don't we start with you just telling our audience a little bit about who you are and why you want to talk about loss and grief? Well, I am a nurse and daughter, mom, a wife, friend. When I started my nursing journey, I had this idea in my head especially coming from a conservative evangelical Christian background and university where I studied nursing school, I had this idea that I needed to be pro-life about everything because human life is so precious. And part of my job as a nurse, I felt was to do every single thing that I could possible to promote life. And I, I think that's, that was like a very good, slightly naive intention. But as soon as I got out of my, uh, nursing school, I, I went straight to ICU intensive care and I immediately was immersed in sickness and death and dying much more than I ever had been before. And I realized that the patients and their family members that were coming into the hospital and needing intensive care, a lot of them weren't aware of that either. And in a lot of cases, I started realizing that if people aren't aware that sickness, death, and dying are a very common part of the human life experience, it's going to be overwhelming. You, You know how in Harry Potter, Voldemort is referred to as he who has no name. And it's like, oh man, we have to be in such denial about this horrible, horrible thing because it's so, so horrible that we can't, you know, we have to kind of stick our heads in the sand about it. And that's almost, that gives something power when we do that so bad we can't even face it. I didn't realize that I had done that myself and that a lot of people were coming into the hospital, whether they're the patient or their family members or loved ones with that same attitude. And they were so blindsided whenever something like that happened, whether it was an accident, whether it was, you know, culmination of tragedy or lifestyle or whatever, whatever it may be. 
And it got uh, often when we're getting close to someone's end of life, people would still be in denial and often decisions weren't made beforehand. The patients and the family members didn't know what they wanted. And in those situations, when people hadn't looked ahead, they really ended up in a lot of situations prolonging suffering. And I started realizing that this simple idea about promoting life at all costs was actually, it didn't fit for every situation, you know? And I do think that in some cases, yes, do everything you can. But there's other cases where when it's someone's time, it actually is more generous, more kind to facilitate a peaceful transition, I'll say, and actually embracing of what is rather than that denial or pushback against what you don't want to be, if that makes sense. And so I think that's kind of why I wanted to talk with you today about this, because I feel like it's really important. I think talking about it helps, helps us be more aware of it. Do you remember that movie? What about Bob? Yes. Um, That's one of my favorite movies. Go on. (laughs) There's this um, part in the movie where Bob, who's like this psych patient is talking with his psychologist son, Siggy or Sigmund. And they're talking with each other about, um, you know, I'm everybody dies. I'm going to die. You're going to die. And they get into this little kind of morbid conversation about that. And then it's just, it's just funny because it's like, it's true. This conversation is actually something that we need to have and we need to say it. And we, we shouldn't be shocked when it happens. Sometimes the situation, the circumstances are shocking, but I can't tell you how many people are shocked when their 97 year old grandma passes away. Or, you know, it's a conversation where we need to like sit in that and be like, I am mortal. I am going to die. You're going to die and face that so that we can actually live a more full, whole life with open eyes going forward and actually make decisions um, about what we might want. And that way that burden isn't left on the people that we love that we don't want to have that burden in the first place. And that actually thing also, I think does help facilitate the the grieving process as well. So. Yeah, it does. Wow. There's so much richness in there too, about your experience, about how your faith probably shifted, how your ability to interact with patients probably shifted. Uh, How old were you when you entered the ICU for the first time? Oh, I was a baby. I want to say 21 years old. I was the youngest nurse in the hospital when I started working there. Okay. So my question is coming out of an evangelical nursing school at 21 and stepping into this entirely new real world experience, how did the whirlwind of your faith and your face-to-face experiences now with death and dying shift what you believed personally, because professionally it sounded like everything started to shift very, very rapidly. But what did that change in you as you experienced life in the ICU in conjunction with what you'd been trained your life to believe? Um, That is a great question. I think as all the practical changes were happening and how I had to change how I cared. Cause first of all, you know, as a nurse, I'm not writing orders. So my scope of nursing practice is limited to ultimately what the medical team working together decides. So 
that limitation is there anyways. So I'll just want to put that out there. (laughs) But within the scope of nursing, I had to realize that I had to develop a level of emotional maturity in order to compassionately care for people in circumstances where they weren't going to get better or they, we, we weren't going to be able to, you know, resuscitate them or where we actually had to sit down and have conversations with family about, you know, or the patient themselves explaining to them, you know, that this is actually terminal, or this is something that if you continue wanting full resuscitative care, that it's going to, you know, your quality of life is going to go down. And it, it's really important to communicate that with people. And so as that was shifting in my professional world, I started to have to change how I viewed my role as a bearer of God's image here on earth. And also I had to change my perception of who, like what God is, like what kind of God God is, if that makes sense. Because I was used to this idea that God always wants to heal and God always, you know, like there's no death in God. There's only life. And we have hope because, you know, we can always hope for life, uh, more physical life here on earth and more um, physical healing here on earth. And I know that I also believed like, oh yeah, eternal life, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But practically speaking, if someone was alive, like I again, like what I was saying before, it was my responsibility in my mind to promote life at all costs. And so when it got to realizing, oh, wow, like I don't, maybe that's not my role. Maybe being able to provide compassionate care and comfort care to people who are in that process of dying, or even being able to be there with someone that is actually just as holy and just as sacred and just as beautiful as any idea of the miraculous that I had that, that could or might happen for someone, if that makes sense. It definitely makes sense. You're, everything you're saying is making me think about the decisions that one has to make when you can technically prolong life on earth, but the quality of life is completely different from what it once was. And I imagine you interacted with people a lot in that circumstance. Yeah, actually, I mentioned earlier, this one patient stuck out to me, this experience with her, because she was 97 years old. Her family, it was interesting because she actually, I I live in Oklahoma and she was, for patient confidentiality, I'll just say she spoke a specific Native American language as her first language. So she actually needed a translator to communicate with us in English. And it was uh, one of her family members was there and they said, yeah, she never, we never planned for this. We didn't know we didn't think she was going to die. And she was 97 years old. And that day it was within the first year of my nursing career. And they, there there's options for people. When you, when you go into the hospital, they say like, if you pass away, like, do you want us to let you go? Or do you want us to try to resuscitate you? Um, it's called a DNR, a do not resuscitate. And that's an option for or there's options for limited, you know, like I want, I don't want a ventilator, but I do want to be shocked or vice versa, whatever. And that's not for everyone. And there's different, you know, times for different things. But at 97 years old, they were like, you know, she came in and her heart was failing. Her lungs were failing. Her kidneys were failing. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't cognizant. So her brain was like, not, not working. And, 
you know, in a situation where she could have been, you know, given uh, medication for pain or anxiety to keep her comfortable and her family could have been there with her, she didn't have that. And we, I remember we coded this patient, which, which means that we recess- did a full resuscitation on her six times during that day. And by the end of the day, I was doing chest compressions and all her ribs were broken because we had to do this. And I can remember feeling that this is so wrong and almost feeling like, God, forgive me because we don't know what we're doing. Or like, we're kind of in this legal position where we have to resuscitate this person when it felt so wrong. And that was a huge shift for me coming from a place where I thought at all costs, we should keep someone alive. And I'm sorry, that's probably should put a trigger warning at the beginning of this, but it was like, that was like a trigger for me. And that, I remember that experience with that patient it changed me and it changed how I viewed death and dying. And it was, it was difficult too, because every single time that that happened, we like the patient's family had to leave. And ultimately one of, at the very end of the day, we had to, you know, she coded again, which means her heart and heart and lungs stopped. And we had to have the family leave. And she ended, we ended up not being able to get her back and her family I mean, she wasn't alone because we were there with her, but her family wasn't there and they could have been, you know? And so she was surrounded by strangers, albeit ones that were trying to care for her as her family wished, but you know, it could have, I feel like my heart just breaks for what could have been for her, a beautiful and peaceful transition surrounded with her family. And there was like a denial again of, I, I can remember one of her family members was like, well, you know, because I, I was try- trying to talk to them about like what she would have wanted and explain how really violent at this point it is to resuscitate her, shocking her with electricity and, you know, pounding on her chest things. And, and they were like, well, you know, she did say that she might want to travel some more. So we probably better keep doing it. You know, like it was, it was a level of denial that was more than, you know, more than average, I would say, but, you know, because of that, we had to continue. And so being able to actually be aware of what's happening and that can give people power to actually honor and be there and be present for the person that is passing away. Yeah. I think that is such an authentic desire too, to be able to communicate to family members. You don't quite understand the intensity that's going on and without being graphic, without trying to horrify you, because we're trained professionals and we can handle different levels of intensity, especially since this isn't our family member, that denial comes from a place of just truly not understanding. And the way that you have positioned yourself both as a nurse and now transitioning to into this spiritual and authenticity coaching business is really telling of the way that you want to approach grief and with individuals in a one-on-one basis to help them kind of lift the veil from what they're missing in the here and now. Because if you told me my grandmother was failing and I knew she'd been resuscitated a few times without any further knowledge of the medical resuscitation process, I would probably say the same thing, but she and I were going to go to Europe. I need you to, to do more because we have plans. And just having this failure to comprehend, not because I'm intentionally trying, but just because like you said, we've never, I've never had to face something like that. I've never reckoned with the idea that someday my life will be different and this person will be gone from the earth. 
So I just want to transition because you said something so beautiful as you were describing um, that event with just this heart cry of God, forgive us. We don't know what we're doing here. This is harmful to all of all involved to us as medical professionals, to this patient. So how do you now, as you are, and you can tell us a little bit about your coaching too, how do you take what you've experienced as a nurse into those one-on-one relationships where you are engaging people in hard conversations, but also with the idea that you can approach scary topics, hard conversations, death, dying, illness with the same level of hope and intention that you've always approached your life, but it doesn't have to be predicated on life eternal on earth or anything like that. Does that make sense? I'm not exactly sure exactly what you're asking. Yeah, no problem. So how do you, as a spiritual coach, as an authenticity coach, how are you bringing the same level of intentional one-on-one that you would have with a patient's family to say, actually, let's expand our view here. Your, your family member is dying. This is what it looks like. How are you bringing that conversation to people before they're face-to-face with last minute decisions and inability to save someone? How are you bringing those conversations to the day-to-day life in your new coaching practice, regardless of the topic? Got it. Okay. So I think it comes down to vulnerability and fear. What's being replicated in our day-to-day life, whether or not we're, you know, forced in, in the same way as someone is forced to vulnerability or fear in being inpatient in the hospital, every single day there are interactions or issues or things that we have this option to be vulnerable about our fears with being able to actually be with someone who's saying, I feel stuck. I feel like I can't, like there's this part of me that wants to deal with this, but I'm also afraid of it. Being able to help someone, like people want actually, they want to be vulnerable, but a lot of times they hold back because they have been vulnerable before. And then people respond either in judgment, they respond in fear also. And so if you just give people a space to actually be completely honest about whatever they're afraid about, um, because that's really what, you know, with grief, specifically about death and dying, but uh, grief about anything or fear or pain, like that, I guess that's where it translates. Like people want to be vulnerable. And so making a space for people to be vulnerable and then actually inviting them into deeper vulnerability and deeper honesty about, you know, name the monster, name Voldemort, you know, (laughs) like, um, let's look at this and see where the power actually is. And when you're able to do that, that actually invites people to face their fears, recognize where, okay, now we faced it. Now what do we do? It gives them the power back into their court, I guess. And with open eyes, they're able to assess the situation and assess what's going on and actually make clear decisions going forward, which is what ultimately as part of the medical team in the hospital, like I would try to be communicative with people so that way they could make more conscious, healthy decisions so that way they are more aware. And I think that that's what translates to me in 
our day-to-day life stuff. If someone is having a hard time where they feel like, man, I'm not, I don't feel like myself or I'm not, you know, I feel like I'm supposed to be something else or someone else. I feel like this expectation is on me, but really deep down, like that doesn't fit. And it's like, well, let's look at that discomfort. Let's look at that. Let's explore that pain point. Let's explore that. And ultimately at the end of the day, you mentioned, you know, the afterlife stuff versus like keeping people alive today. At the end of the day, nobody knows about the afterlife. So all we have is today, all we have is this present moment and uh, the trajectory that we want our lives to go. And so being able to be there for people who are wanting to face those difficult things, like that's just such an honor and a privilege for me because I believe every single person, the more that they are authentic and honest and face their fears and are real with what they want, I think that is no less divine than not, I guess I'll say, <laughs> you know, if the divine has put something inside of us to, to actually let us know, Hey, this doesn't feel good. Or this doesn't feel like me. And we actually follow who we actually are. There's so much peace in that. And there's so much joy in that concurrent with the uncomfortableness and the, and the pain but it shifts it from fear to actually being able to be empowered and doing something about it. If that makes sense. Oh, it totally makes sense. It also sounds so much like hope restored. I know one of the things I tend to look for when it comes to coaching or anybody who says, I want to teach you a thing, right? I look to see how they have reckoned with loss in their life, how they, have they been face-to-face with loss? Have they actually addressed it in some way or another, not because loss makes you a better person or a more trustworthy source. But what I'm looking for is the person that has wrestled with a dark side, so to speak, who has named Voldemort and said, actually, you're not as terrifying because you're just the other part of life I haven't experienced yet. There are dark things in this world that I have to reckon with. And the person who has come out of that on the other side, or just learned how to wrestle without throwing their hope to the side, you know, who can find the gray space in between that richness that comes out of your life on that note. Once you have found some gray space to exist, there's an entire new rainbow in the middle of that. And that it sounds like a lot of what you are pulling out of people is a, a recognition of actually you contain multitudes and abilities to face death, dying, loss, grief of any shape or form. And that is a remarkable skill set to want to walk someone through because it's not a fun, it's not necessarily a fun activity to do. No. So interesting that you said that, that piece about hope actually here in Oklahoma, there is, um, I am blanking on the doctor's name, but he, he's a professor and a, and a doctor. I want to say he's a psychologist, but he's in based at a OU Tulsa, University of Oklahoma, Tulsa. And he has what's called hope theory. And he actually studies hope. I don't know if you've heard of him, but one of my friends is actually, she's worked in his research lab and her and her husband actually own parenting legacy. They do therapy for families and children. And I, totally recommend them. I learned about the hope theory from her. And it's really interesting because hope theory, they talk about it as defined, not by like being hopeful as, as far as like, Oh, I hope for this good thing to happen to me, but more like hope in yourself and your own ability to be able to figure out a way through. And 
I love that. And I think that actually overlaps with, I, I know you're all about the, the grief work. And I, I'm sure you have heard of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief or grieving. And the last stage is actually acceptance. But further researchers have actually added an additional stage. And that's more about restoration, like restoration of life. And the additional stage is actually for people who are continuing to be alive. Because Elizabeth Kula-Ross, her theory was actually for and developed out of patients who had terminal illnesses, and they were going through their own, like coming to terms with their own death and dying. So often that is used, you know, as a blanket grief thing, but really the acceptance is acceptance of their own death and then they die and then it's over. So for everyone else who's grieving and they're not the ones dying or they're not the, like they're left and something else has been lost or whether it's a dream or a home in a fire or a loved one or whatever, for those of us who are still alive, it's the restoration of like new ways to live that totally overlaps with the hope theory, meaning that we believe that we have the ability to work through things and get through things. It's such a beautiful way of looking at hope. I don't think there's an end to grief once you grieve something, but maybe, maybe a beautiful path forward. Yeah. So much of what you said is absolutely my favorite thing to talk about in life, because I, that's <laughs> why, you know, I wrote the book literally to, yes. to find a way to help people recognize those steps were never meant for you. They were not. But since you're familiar yes. with them, let's wander through them a bit so you can feel equipped and then get to a place where you stop relying on wishful thinking hope and start looking towards the inner resilience of hope and yes. what that actually can transform you as a person and your externals around you into for life going forward. I am going to include all of those resources that you rattled off in our show notes, because we're now running out of time. And yet I want to talk for six more hours about hope theory and all of that stuff. So Elizabeth, before we go, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you? And if you're opening slots for spiritual coaching in some way, or how they can just connect with you on that. Thank you. I am actually developing that right now. The easiest way is to connect with me on Twitter or Instagram. My handle is at Elizabeth Bojong and it's Elizabeth with an S, not a Z. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll make sure you have that information so you can post that as well. I am revamping the blog and actually I've been doing the coaching unpro- unprofessionally. That doesn't sound right. Um, no, it's not unprofessionally. You're just doing it as a side gig right yeah. now, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so if you want to be a part of my professional coaching, that should be coming. Hopefully if I can get everything, it will be this coming year in 2022. So I would love to make myself available for anyone who uh, resonates with what I said today. Well, thank you so much for spending your time and just giving us some stories and pictures about what life is like both as a nurse and just a human willing to navigate those really uncomfortable places. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to episode 23 of Restorative Grief. Elizabeth's compassion for others is evident. Desiring a quality of life that is meaningful, intentional, and full of wellness on behalf of others is the result of recognizing that grief sometimes means reckoning with what we'd rather ignore. We know that denial is a safety net, and when we are shocked by grief, that denial keeps us safe. 
It is tender-hearted humans like Elizabeth who are positioned to create that safe place for us to fall apart. And I'm so grateful she's moving into a more available arena as a coach to provide that place for more people. If you find yourself feeling overwhelmed, stuck, or scared of a transition in your own life, take advantage of this podcast and my guests. You can leave me a message through the podcast page on Anchor or simply reach out to me or a guest on social media. I try to ensure all the guests are active and available because this show will never, ever, ever be about simply promoting a product. It's about building a life of intentional alignment with ourselves and our community. This is also a great time for you to subscribe to the show, leave a review, and share this episode with someone who might need a little encouragement to know that it's safe to lay down the self-protection because hope is much more than just a theory. Remember, the only solution to grief is to do the work of grieving. Thanks for listening. Let's talk again soon.